Well, welcome back to another session of Rediscovering Jesus Through Revelation. And we've just finished up with Revelation uh, the, chapter 11 and uh, the conclusion of the, uh, the second septet uh, of the seven trumpets. But now we're moving into really some fantastic passages here, guys. Revelation 12, 13, and 14 gives us some of the most, I think, I don't know what you think, but some of the most interesting images in the book of Revelation um, when it pertains to things that um, perhaps are happening in both heaven and on earth. What do you guys think? Uh, Michael, as you've reminded us in our off-camera discussions, um, some people refer to this as John's nativity story. Uh, he doesn't cover that in his own gospel account. And here is kind of a, a supernatural perspective, as it were, uh, unseen realm perspective of the birth of Christ. And we see, beginning in 12.1, I love how John puts it. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Um, so we see this mysterious woman. She's pregnant. She's in the heavens. Uh, clearly, this is not an earthly uh, gestation, but... Uh, there's something to her that she's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Of course, there's been a lot of speculation as to these symbols, this imagery. Um, many see the woman as Mary. Uh, others propose that this is uh, God's covenant people, Israel. And uh, mm. What yeah, do you think? yeah, you're right. I mean, this is uh, this has puzzled many people, but I love what we've been trying to do with uh, with this book, and and that mm -hmm. is uh, to take us back to uh, what it would have meant to those first century readers or hearers. Mm -hmm. of this, and of course, we know that there's a tradition that John traveled to Ephesus with Mary, and uh, you, you would think reasonably that uh, Mary would have shared her story with others, and of course. Uh, that people would have been captivated, I'm sure, with uh, the Mary's presence there as the, not just the bearer of Christ, but as she became known, it, it, indeed, at the, the uh, Council of Ephesus in 431, uh, the bearer of God. Theotokos. And, yeah, Theotokos. Um, and, uh, and one, I, I mean, at least for me, as I think about this, I wonder if they would have associated this woman with Mary herself. And in, and in some way here, um, and I think this bears some merit that uh, John um, in his gospel, and I think it comes out in Revelation as well, really tries to connect with his audience. And so those stories of Jesus, of Mary, of Jesus's life uh, in his gospel, connected with different stories of, uh, of the Ephesians. Um, and I wonder if this might also be uh, reflective of that. 
And what, what draws me to this are a couple of things. One, and just the description here, uh, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and her head, a crown of, of 12 stars. Mm -hmm. um, we know that Artemis, who was very prominent in Asia Minor at this time, was, was considered to be, among other things, the goddess of the moon. And it makes me wonder if John is not so much drawing a comparison between Mary and Artemis, but uh, he is relating that, that this woman who bears God himself is greater than Artemis. And, um, I don't think that he, uh, well, I'm sure he's not going to be calling people to worship because uh, his focus is on Christ in, in this passage. Mm -hmm. um, but he seems to be drawing upon stories that would be uh, familiar to the, the people of, uh, of Asia Minor. I think alongside of that, there are interesting parallels between John's description of this woman and the birth of Christ and uh, what was known as the Leto Apollo Python uh, myth. Uh, with um, in, in, in Greek mythology, as you might recall, Leto uh, has a relationship with Zeus, uh, that she becomes pregnant with twins, Apollo and Artemis. Um, uh, Hera, Zeus's wife, is not happy about that, and she solicits the help of Python, a dragon, to kill Apollo. Uh, and presumably Artemis, although Artemis doesn't factor into this particular story. But, um, and so the imagery here of that struggle between a woman and a dragon over the birth of a son is, is uh, certainly uh, bearing on, on this story in some way. Well, and I think it's important to point out this is probably the uh, most well-known Greek myth in Asia Minor. Uh, so that uh, some think that what John has done here has borrowed from that Greek myth in order to communicate to his audience and make his point. But it no longer resembles the myth. It's a thoroughly strong biblical and theological presentation, uh, we might some say, of salvation history, mm. that it goes from conception uh, to at least ascension, and some would say from, and I should have said incarnation to um, ascension. But some would say that it also goes from uh, incarnation to uh, glorification of Christ in his final triumph. And that makes me wonder if it's all salvation history, might this not span all of, cre all of human history, all of salvation history from creation to the consummation? Mm-hmm where we see here a wonderful outlining and even within chapter 12, a repetition of the story of God's salvation of humankind that we know it involved uh, real people such as Mary. We know that uh, it involved 
uh, Christ, the Son of God, becoming incarnate. And we know that uh, we get to this point where uh, whether these 12 stars represent Israel, Israel uh, is now in our time understood as the, the Israel of God, the church, who ultimately triumphed. And what would this mean for the people who heard it for the first time? And Michael, I think your analogy uh, or your reference to uh, the myth, the of uh, the myth that you just related, uh, is that this would be so fresh in their mind they couldn't help but make all all sort of uh, connections, as you have suggested. And again, we're in. Revelation with a ap- apocalyptic literature that fires the imagination, and these uh, imaginative synapses are just bursting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're popping on every every word and image. Right. Yeah. And it, wouldn't it be even more so? I mean, if you think about this, that that uh, um, they would have known Mary. Uh, yeah. She is a real woman who gave birth to Christ, who gave birth to this male child. The myth of Leto, Apollo, and Python is just that. It's a myth. Nobody has ever seen Leto. Nobody has ever seen Apollo except in statues and Python as well. Um, And so this is is altogether different than uh, that myth. And and, uh, I think John rightly brings it up, saying, hey, this is the reality here of Mm -hmm. uh, this story. Um, it's not this myth that you once uh, adhered to, but it's this real story of a, a woman who you have met, uh, particularly those of Ephesus, and, um, and a male child that you have learned about. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think there's some significance to John's use of, of that imagery. I'll draw a contrast in the way the hearers may have uh, responded to this and how it's different from the way we respond. We read chapter 12 and we're pouring over every word, trying to figure out, you know, where is this symbolism? Where is this imagery taking us? Mm -hmm. And I think we can get it when we're familiar with scripture, but especially here when we're familiar with that Greek myth. But while we're pouring over the page, <laughs> as I've done for hours, you know, trying to read different commentaries or different resources about, man, where, what does this mean? Where is it taking us? The people who first heard it, their faces were up, their eyes were wide, and they were bright, and he had their attention. Mm-hmm. He had them in the palm of his hands. He was speaking their language. Mm-hmm. And yet, it was so unlike the myth that they heard. And again, these are people, prime, the primary addressees were people who were really in a bad place, not ready for the trial and things that were to come, but knowing that they had to bear witness with their lip and with their life. And, and so he has them. And then the encouragement is, Hey, it, once again, in the end, you win. Mm-hmm. You know, you're victorious. Yeah. Yeah. I might call this a demythologizing, as it were, 
of the Leto Apollo Python story. Um, kind of what Paul did in Athens. You know, I see you're a very religious people, but let me declare to you the unknown God. Um, and, and and even kind of following along the lines of, of a first century Jewish teaching method, you know, Jesus uses it. You have heard it said, but I tell you. Um, mm -hmm. I want to propose that it very well could be a both and, where this woman is not merely just Mary, but that it is God's covenant people from the beginning. Um, and the reason I would aim to propose that is because of the curse that the Lord puts on the serpent in the garden, mm -hmm. uh, describing it as a serpent that will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman will crush the skull. Um, we see a, a number of corollaries. Um, of course, Jesus is the descendant through the line of Judah going all the way back to, to Adam. And so there's no reason to disassociate uh, God's covenant people, Israel, with this woman. Uh, again, the, the 12 stars being the patriarchs as well. And then, of course, I think it does take up Mary into it as the Theotokos, the, the mother of God, and bringing him forth. And then, uh, of course, this great fiery red dragon that we'll look at momentarily uh, is representative of Satan in many guises, as it were, the seven heads and ten horns, uh, trying to destroy God's people and in particularly destroy uh, the, the child born of, of Mary who has descended through the lines of Israel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a, uh, a, I mean, we might say, we could say, um, and I would say this tentatively, but, but a, uh, a reversal almost of the scene in the garden mm -hmm. uh, here or a fulfillment of uh, the scene in the garden mm -hmm. for sure. I think James Hamilton makes that connection very clear uh, in his work. Um, I, I forget the title now, uh, but you know, that's the direction he goes that there's a great deal of fulfillment happening here mm -hmm. based on Genesis three and carrying it forward all the way through to the consummation. Uh, with respect to verse 1, uh, and the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars, I'd like to read Genesis 37, 9, a familiar story about Joseph and the dream he had and told his brothers and father that he had. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, I have, uh, behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And so it encapsulates uh, the entire uh, patriarchal family at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
it's obviously a reference that goes at least back that far. Mm-hmm. And then again, as the, the church is the new Israel, uh, we see this again, this story of salvation history, but couched uh, as we move forward in the story in this Greek myth that was most popular in Asia, Western Asia Minor at this time. Well, we, as David, you alluded to, we meet this great red dragon that is clearly Satan, as we read in uh, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And of course, this relating back to the, that heavenly battle uh, between Satan and Michael. And his casting to the earth, as well as uh, the sweeping of other angelic beings um, to the earth. This is what I love about some places in Revelation. I wonder who the dragon is, right? (laughs) You know, this is where the identity is nailed for us. Right. You know, it's like John says, it's like he's putting up blinking lights and everything to say, don't miss this one. So at least we know here we're not speculating at all mm. as to who that is. So with all that we've mentioned, uh, I can see why some people would say this is salvation history from the fall all the way to the consummation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and And whether that's it or not, whether that's it specifically, but we do see definitely uh, a great spiritual battle, a great spiritual war being waged. And once again, I don't think we're to read this in a linear fashion. Not, I don't think we're to read chapter 12 as this happened, that happened, and then something else happened, and this is how it ended. I believe even within these sections, uh, the ESV divides this up between verses 1 to 6, 7 to 12, and then 13 to uh, the uh, 17. I think within this chapter, we also see recapitulation. In other words, Satan is really defeated. <laughs> and right. the way he approaches fighting this war, he, he gets defeated uh, himself. The, the beast from the Sea gets defeated, the beast from the earth gets defeated, God's people are victorious in the end. Good, and we have this emphasis here too in verse 10. Uh, John hears a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the land, lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Don, you alluded uh, in our last session to this notion of Christus Victor. And certainly we see this here. Christ is victorious. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his authority reigns uh, here. But that doesn't mean that we, we are somehow, uh, how, how, what would, what's the word I'm looking for? That we are somehow exempt from the, the, the attacks of the accuser. 
this is this is real that's going on and yet we can rely upon christ's authority to overcome the the question that comes to my mind is uh when does this battle take place when is the victory won is there a, a terminus a quo you know when it begins terminus ad quem when it ends uh, what say ye i think we're very likely looking toward the end that is um I think of Luke chapter nine or chapter 10, rather, when Jesus is sending out the 72 and they return and he, you know, they're rejoicing of how the demons obey them in the name of Christ under his authority that he's given them. But what does Jesus say to them? You know, I saw Satan fall from heaven. and. You know, there's some question as to is he speaking in real time or is he referring to uh, a past or or what? Or is he making a spiritual observation of sorts that, you know, you guys went out and you did all this stuff and, and by declaring the gospel and by healing people and uh, you made an impact on the unseen realm. And as a result, Satan has lost ground. Um, I tend to think that this is, this is going to sound weird, if not contradictory, but I think he's using figurative language to speak of a, a literal event. Um, what exactly it means, I think, is way above my pay grade. But uh, all things being equal, we know that Satan has been on earth before. I mean, he was there in the wilderness to tempt Jesus. So to say that he's been thrown down from heaven uh, and, you know, woe to the earth and the sea because he knows his uh, time is short. I, I'm not sure how we should interpret that. Well, it makes you wonder, I mean, we've alluded to various uh, Old Testament passages that in some way illumine uh, what we read in Revelation, and and one wonders if this might be one of those in in chapter 12, verse 7, Mm -hmm. when we see this war going on that uh, we know from Ezekiel that um, there was a point, uh, it seems, that Satan was uh, excommunicated, if you will, uh, Mm -hmm. thrown out of heaven into the earth and if that might not be uh the illusion here um that we're seeing in chapter 12 i think that uh chapter 12 has this uh proleptic point of view mm-hmm. uh, which fits in with what gordon fee has written on revelation that uh this is about the spiritual battle the you know it's it's cosmic in scope. And although we can point to specific events that we already know about based on our reading of scripture, such as the one you just mentioned, Michael, from uh, Ezekiel, uh, but 
as theologian um, uh, George Eldon Ladd said, and has you know made it so common for us to speak of the here but the not yet. Mm-hmm. You know, we see glimpses of this, but the victory is not yet final. I mean, mm-hmm. in in the real sense, it is final, but we're not experiencing the finality of it at this point. Yeah. So in that regard, that's why I say it's really hard to take this as a, well, this happened and that happened, because the imagery seems to go back and forth in time as yeah. you walk through chapter 12. Good, good. And we know it's going to get worse. Too. It's intensifying, the, yes. It, we get to chapter 13 and we think, holy cow. Yeah. What's going on? I thought we won in chapter 12. Well, it does leave you, uh, as we pick up in chapter 13, that the dragon is warring against the woman. The woman is sheltered in the wilderness, uh, in some way uh, uh, protected uh, from that. But there is, again, from 7 to to, uh, 12, this real sense that the church is not going to be immune from uh, the accuser. Uh, yes, Jesus has authority. Yes, salvation has come. Yes, power is is uh, has come as well. But the accuser is still active in this world, accusing uh, the brothers. Mm-hmm. Night and day, he says, before our God. Uh, and we get this beautiful, I mean, this is the gospel too, isn't it? Uh, it, we, we've been talking a lot about this, the three of us, but, um, and they conquered him by the blood of their lamb and the word of their testimony. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, again, we have over and over in Revelation, uh, this, this idea of the sacrificial lamb. It's by his blood. Uh, Revelation 5 tells us in ransomed. Um, and and so there, you know, as we've been uh, talking about different theories of atonement, yes, there is a victory, but there was a cost to that victory. And that cost was uh, the blood of the lamb who was sacrificed for us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is so beautifully coming out in uh, Revelation chapter 12. Well, but even even their own lives, right? There's a cost to the lives of those who choose to hold to their testimony. Uh, as it says, as John writes in the second half of that verse 11, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Mm. So, you know, again, it goes back to the letters endure, persevere. You don't need to fear the first death. Before we get too far away from chapter 12, I just want to mention we Chapter 12 is the center of the book. It's the theological center of the book. Mm-hmm. You read verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And we do know that the event that prompted this fierce outbreak of wrath uh, is the resurrection of Christ. Mm. So, and that brings us, I mean, that's what carries the saints through to this faithful witness, to this right. faithful testimony. 
yes, you may give your life, but you do not love your life to death. You, uh, you will proclaim the gospel. You'll remain faithful. And, and then in 13, as you've already mentioned, it intensifies. Um, but we should note that we've passed the theological uh, center of the book. Uh, and, and the center of the book, actually, to, to get to this point, and that it's going to require, uh, you know, victory requires the blood of the Lamb, and it may require, it, it does require, evidently, much blood of the saints to be spilled, because that's how we, as saints, overcome, ultimately. Mm-hmm. But those who seek to save their lives will lose them. Those who lose their lives for my sake will save them. Yeah, and then this beautiful uh, phrase here in verse 17, the, the end of that in particular. Uh, but, well, let me read the whole thing. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Mm-hmm. So again, we are not immune to this battle that's happening. On those who, the, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And so if I hear you correctly, you understand that to say that we as Christians are not exempt from uh, persecution and tribulation that will come. Yeah, uh, precisely. Yeah, I think that's so absolutely key. And I think, you know, I, I, I don't want to point fingers or anything, but there is a school of interpretation that over the last 100 plus years, uh, 150 years has really taken root in Western Christianity that could only be dreamed up from a Western perspective because it, it paints this rosy picture of how God is going to rapture his church, his true church, out before tribulation begins. <clears throat> and I think what a what first of all, it is a misreading of, of everything Jesus says about those who will come after him. But but second of all, to me it's an insult to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world where they have far more often than not experienced great tribulation at the hands of the enemies of Christ, whether those enemies acknowledge Christ in any way, shape or form or persecute and kill out of complete ignorance is not the issue. It is that there is a, an enemy behind the enemy, the enemy, Uh, as Paul says, you know, we're, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against spiritual authorities, principalities, this present darkness. Um, and as he says in 2 Corinthians 10, we're, we're not fighting with weapons of this world. We're fighting with uh, spiritual weapons to uh, take captive pretensions that set themselves up against the gospel, against the kingdom of God, and demolish them, take them captive. Um, we want to be careful to not import or bring baggage into our reading of scripture, but let scripture define for us the theological outcome. 
chapter 13, we, we are meeting two beasts. Um, one, and these are interesting. They're interesting uh, how, how uh, John describes them because they're very different. Uh, the first beast rises out of the sea with 10 horns, seven heads, and 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And then the second beast is uh, has is rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon, and it exercised all the authority of the first beast's beast in its presence. Interesting uh, d- descriptions, two very distinct uh, beasts here. Well, in the uh, the classic reading of that school of interpretation I was just talking about, the uh, the first beast is. Um, let me see here. I think the first beast is like the uh, the false prophet, and the second beast is the antichrist. Or the false Christ, mm-hmm. um, but the problem again with that is that it's imposing a particular time and place, uh, and requires this happening at the very end of history. The yeah, and, th- and this reads, doesn't it, David? Like this is happening now. I mean, these are things that it, people are experiencing. And and have happened, mm-hmm. and have been experienced. Um, so we're seeing a, a, a false religion essentially set up, and a a false system. Uh, I don't want to say secular because that would have been a foreign concept to the first readers, but uh, certainly a a worldview, as it were, a governmental system. Uh, whoever is in power is in opposition. Mm. And that yeah, would serve bill for uh, Asia Minor. Yes, yes, absolutely. And again, we've I'm continually asking myself what what would they have seen here uh, or what what would they have taken into consideration as they heard uh, th- this Revelation from John, um, and I'm going to take just a stab, and you guys can interact with me a bit and push back on me a bit here too. But it, it, just thinking, if I were a first-century uh, Christian living in Asia Minor, I, I would have heard uh, th- these two beasts as reflecting two uh, entities. One, uh, that first beast reflecting a, a religious entity. And uh, the second beast reflecting a political entity, and there's overlap in in both of these at, at some level. But um, that first beast with ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, I, I think, uh, is religious because of what we see in regards to this beast having diadems and the other beast not having diadems. Diadems uh, in Asia Minor uh, were significant for uh, the religious people uh, or uh, gods or goddesses. They were often seen with diadems on them. They were unique uh, 
in the sense that you didn't often see uh, politicians represented with diadems, although in later times we, we do see that. Um, there are occasions, however, where, um, and this goes to what we've been talking about in regards to emperor worship, where some emperors would be portrayed on coinage with diadems, mm -hmm. uh, if not in uh, some form of a statue. And, and from what I understand in the temple of Ephesus, in the first century, there was not only a statue of Artemis, who of course has a diadem, interestingly enough, with 10 figures on it, um, uh, whether or not these would be the 10 horns, um, I, I don't know, but there were certainly 10 figures on that diadem. Um, but there was also a representation of, of uh, Philip of Macedon um, with a diadem. And so you see the, the beginnings of this blending of uh, emperor uh, worship. Although in the city of Ephesus, we have to note that Artemis was of such a figure uh, that Ephesus was passed over as a site of uh, a temple for uh, specifically for emperor worship uh, out of concern that Artemis would, uh, would be too prominent to mm -hmm. uh, merit um, or, or uh, allow the facilitation of worship of an emperor. Mm -hmm. But that, that being said, uh, it, it seems to me that what we might be seeing here is um, either the beast uh, representing Artemis. I mean, my mind goes to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 32, where Paul says that he's fighting the wild beast in Ephesus, uh, which is certainly a reference to Artemis. Um, the 10 diadems could represent the 10 different deities that were worshipped in Asia Minor, uh, including Zeus and Apollo, Dionysus, uh, uh, and, and several others. The seven heads perhaps representing the, the uh, religious leaders of the seven cities. Um, but again, I mean, the danger with this, of course, is reading too much into uh, the, these images. And then that the second beast being more of a political nature. And uh, th this especially comes out in, uh, in verse 16, uh, that, that this beast... Um, it says also it causes all both small and great rich and poor both free and slave to be marked on the mm -hmm. right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name and of course many have alluded to this as being a reference to uh, coinage of that time that would have mm -hmm. the mark of an emperor on it. And so there seems to be perhaps a reference here to uh, some type of political entity. Can we go back to the first beast for a moment? Yes, please. Um, one of the things I think is worth that's worth drawing attention to is uh, 13.2. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Um, I have read. Um, in a few commentaries, and Beale may have been among them. Well, he, he definitely was, but whether he uh, may have alluded to this, but 
I'm in agreement with those commentaries at this particular juncture that, pardon my French, but this is kind of a bastardization of the four uh, beasts associated with the gospel. Uh, those four beasts that surround the the temple, or not the temple, the throne, rather. Mm. Uh, this is a, this is satanic mimicry, as it were, of those. Uh, Satan cannot copy directly, so he mimics. He he does these false images that are meant to capture people's attentions and imaginations. Um, mm since we've seen the four heavenly beasts alluded to already, here is Satan's copycat, as it were. Uh, it's just amalgamated into one beast rather than four separate ones. So much going on here once again. And it, I would like to say things uh, at this point that I think complement what both of you have said. Um, but as a preface, I would like to say that we see here in chapter 13 how Satan fights. Mm -hmm. uh, David, you refer to this amalgamated beast. But we also see that this beast is the incarnation of Satan. Right. Uh, verse 4, they worshipped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast. And so that's very clearly the religious side of it, Michael, as you referred to. And to what degree it was uh, emperor worship combined with uh, the Eastern uh, mystery cults um, is a bit of a mystery, but it seems to be plain that that is something that's happening. You know, was it 60-40? Was it 70-30? Which way, which side? We don't know. But well, Don, as, if I would interject, um, as you've pointed out so frequently, I, I mean, this is all mixed up. There's a yeah. secretism that's going on here um, that, uh, that John isn't necessarily trying to bifurcate here to separate out these pieces. Right. He's saying that, look, hey, this stuff is going on here. Yeah, um, um, yeah definitely. And well, there's be an amalgamation of all these different things going on opposing the gospel for all we know. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Don. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, no, that's okay. This, but we see that all the way from chapter uh, two, don't we? You know, mm -hmm. the oracles to the churches. Hey, you know, you need to repent. Uh, most of you do, um, and I'm concerned that you're not ready. But there's even just notice the correlation, uh, Michael, particularly uh, in verse seven. And authority was given it. That is the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation. Well, that's the gospel's domain. <laughs> you know, that's that's the missionary heart. And I think what we see is that this message of the first beast, the gospel, the false gospel of the first beast, is every bit as aggressive as the gospel ought to be in our witness today or mm -hmm. in that day. Even that verse makes me wonder about the timeline, <laughs> because I mean, this is stuff we see happening in Genesis. This is this is like Tower of Babel, whatnot. Uh, it's all 
very uh, murky what we're looking at because we're so far removed. But, um, you know, in the least, it's fun to wrestle with this stuff. But, you know, in terms of really trying to get a grasp on what's happening here, um, I think the point is less to develop a fully formulated schema, interpretive schema, as much as just come to the realization that, you know, Satan's got his claws in everything and he's come to, to play hard, so to speak. Mm. Uh, he's pulling any punches and he is out for blood. Yeah. yeah and hence uh, in verse 10, John mm-hmm. says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Mm-hmm. Which certainly takes us all the way back again, as Don reminded us back to the, the seven letters to the seven churches. And we're going to see that repeated in 1412. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, I can almost hear John saying, all right, now, well, I can read him. I, I can actually uh, read and, and hear him saying, I've told you what's going to come. Mm-hmm. And if you are a saint, you're going to be called upon for endurance, mm-hmm. persevere in your faith, uh, P.S., even until death. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we see here in 13 is the, the shift, the, the, the focus on worship has shifted from the heavenly to the earthly perspective. Mm-hmm. And so in verse 4, verse 8, verse 12, verse 15, we have this mention of worship, but it's all focused around the first beast who is the incarnation of Satan. And David, I believe you brought this up either the two podcasts ago about the false Trinity. Mm -hmm. Not only do we have the amalgamation of the beasts, you know, a copy of what is a, a very poor copy of what's in the throne room and presence of God. Mm-hmm. But here, now he is making it so clear. You're on one side or the other. Mm-hmm. You know, there there is authentic, true worship of God. And then there are those who are going to sell out to Satan. I mean, it's it's literally Satan worship, although it's not going to look the way we see it in horror movies. <laughs> right. It'll be much more subtle. Deceptive, dare I say it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to leave anyone the impression that I watch horror movies, but I do have enough uh, cultural awareness to make that uh, perceptive comment. Mm -hmm. All, verse 8, all who dwell on earth will worship it. Verse 12, and make the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Verse 15, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Now, who is that going to be? <laughs> Those he wrote to in chapter two and three. Yeah. Uh, and that theme of false worship continues uh, uh, into 14. I'll just, as a preview, say verse nine and verse 11 as well. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. Mm. Verse 11, 
these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So there's, I mean, it's just such a stark contrast between what we saw in four and five, chapters four and five, mm, the oh worship yeah. around the throne. But now that Satan has this, you know, he's sort of let loose. <laughs> I don't know that he, I don't know how limited he was before, but you know, he's doing his very best here to, He's doing his best to do his worst. Mm. Yeah, and so, uh, others, uh, other parts of this description make us, or at least makes me think in in terms of uh, he's he's almost disguising himself, or the beast is being disguised as some type of savior figure. Mm-hmm. Um, in verse eleven, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth that had two horns like a lamb. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast mm-hmm. whose mortal womb was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now, Michael, I need to ask you about this because I I know we've come at this from several perspectives. Uh, There is the Nero Redivivus Mm -hmm. myth that we talked about before. Do you see a correspondence a little bit closer to Asia Minor, to Western Asia Minor in these churches? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I, and I don't know the answer to that. I, I think most commentators point to uh, verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 12, as this beast having some mortal wound that was healed as a reference to that Nero myth. Um, and this, uh, this uh, was, as I've mentioned before, was a myth that did not come out of the church. This was a, a myth in the Roman Empire that uh, Nero would be uh, resurrected in some form. And, uh, and so that's what's given the weight of the political uh, emphasis of this particular beast. There, was there in Asia Minor some similar myth? I, I don't know, but I think here, uh, uh, Don, that because we have with that first beast, the connection with the religious um, uh, and the second beast with the political, I, I think is this is where we're beginning to see the intersections of Asia Minor and the Roman Empire and Roman rulers and the, what we've brought up before, emperor worship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not one excluding the other or one right. more prominent than the other. It's the reality that both of these things are going on in Asia Minor. In some places, like in Ephesus, for example, there's much more emphasis on the religious uh, uh, worship, the false worship of, of Artemis and other gods and goddesses, as there is in some of the other seven cities. But in a couple of these uh, other cities, and now which cities they are escaped me, um, but there were temples that were dedicated to emperors. And so emperor worship was uh, much more prominent in those places. Um, in fact, in, among those uh, among the cities of Asia Minor, there were often competitions for uh, the lo- the location of a uh, temple dedicated to a, an emperor. Um, and so, I, it's not an either or. 
it's a uh, both a, a reality of things that are going on in Asia Minor. Uh, the religious worship of uh, pagan gods and goddesses, as well as the worship of emperors. Mm -hmm. And so it could very well be that this is a reference to uh, that myth of, of uh, Nero coming back to life. Well, it certainly was a real fear. And there was at least one, if not two different uh, people, men, who tried to play on that and uh, rally people around them in the East so that they could make a go at it in the West. And uh, I think on one occasion, the Romans, uh, the fellow was hiding with the Parthians and the Romans demanded that the Parthians turn him over. And I think they did. And that fellow paid the price for his uh, attempts at capitalizing on the Nero myth but um nero was such a horrible ruler in the end that it really did cause great consternation and fear amongst people in the empire that he might come back so we don't want to downplay that too much mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah good i i, I would agree and of course, that, that idea is uh, perhaps amplified with uh, the, the number mm -hmm. uh, of the man and uh, th that number being 666. Um, or, or, yeah, so let, let me pause there. What do you guys think about this number of the man? Well, when I was in seminary, um, my New Testament professor, Craig Keener, showed us how you could actually take. 666 and make it to come out to be Barney, the purple dinosaur uh, who did the children's programming for PBS for so long. And, you know, of course, there's probably a lot of people who would agree with him that Barney is the Antichrist. Barney uh, or many parents, maybe. Yeah. What was that, Don? Barney the Beast. That's right. He's that that second beast <laughs> oh my goodness now the song is going to be singing through my head the rest of the day clean up well, clean up. and right there shows you that barney <laughs> is the antichrist <laughs> well in in my lifetime alone uh the beast or you know the, the number has been identified the first i heard was henry kissinger mm -hmm. And I could never figure that out. Um, and of course, it's been Obama and Trump and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, every president we've had, somehow their name equals 666, as, as well as all the totalitarian fascist rulers, you know, I don't know. And yet what gets me is to make the name come out to be Nero it has to be transliterated into Hebrew and then you use Hebrew to count it. And I'm thinking how many people in, well, you know, there were synagogues in Asia minor and they had strong synagogues and they had a well-developed community, but they weren't under threat. Mm. And so I don't think they had any reason to tally his name. Uh, yeah. I, I, I've said nothing and I've said too much. 
Well, this is, it's definitely a puzzle um, here and, and one that um, th people have attempted to figure out. And like you've re referenced, there have been many who have been suggested as uh, representative of this number. And historically speaking, I mean, as far back as Irenaeus in um, the late second century, he was speculating to a number of names. Never did he come to the conclusion of Nero, or for that matter, I don't think of any Roman emperor. Um, and uh, and there were others that also had uh, different ideas about who these could be. Uh, Victorinus being one, of course, in his commentary on uh, chapter 13, writes about who he thought this could be, uh, or at least titles uh, of of who it could be. And again, it was uh, the different forms of numerology, taking, uh, you know, letters equivalent to numbers and spelling out various names. And, uh, but I, I, here's one of the things that I find interesting uh, is that, that uh, we translate this in our English with numbers, 666, 666, three numbers. In Greek, it's not translated that way. It's it's written out six hundred and sixty six, and that that strikes me here uh, that John didn't use. Of course, they didn't have a necessarily a numerical system, uh, at least in Arabic numbers. Um, I think there probably was a Greek system for numbers that corresponded to letters, but uh, th this in Greek is written out six hundred and sixty six. Any significance do you think to that? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, we know the Latins had uh, numbers, symbols for numbers, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the Greeks did not. Is that our conclusion? Oh, that's not, not in the same way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they. So how did they? Yeah. Well, my mind's going too many different directions, but well, this this may be a an English translation issue, right? Mm. And it'd be interesting to see what uh, older English. Let me see what the Geneva Bible shows. Yeah, see. It's interesting the the Geneva Bible says and his number is six hundred three score and six. <laughs> well, that ruins that uh that interpretive schema, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I it's an interesting um interesting issue here. Um and it might very well be one of those interpretive things in the English. Um, but it makes me wonder, you know, what was John's intention here in mm -hmm. uh, giving us this number and whatever it means? Are we supposed to figure it out? Um, is there enough here for us that we don't need to figure it out, um, that we need to take the warning that he gives us, uh, the, the awareness or, or what he's alerting us to? that there are gonna be these struggles, the church is gonna be working through them, uh, is gonna suffer through them as well. And, uh, and we are to always remember our call to uh, faithful living. 
Well, as, as Don reminded us earlier, uh, 1310, this calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Uh, we are to be innocent as doves and sly as serpents, um, but we're not to fight fire with fire. Uh, we're, we're to endure. We're to be faithful. We are to be people of the blood of the lamb, the people of the word of our testimony concerning Jesus. And I think how much uh, time, energy, and resources are wasted because the church spends more time speculating on these things rather than producing disciples who can go out and be faithful and persevering rather than kind of hide out in our ghettos and read the National Enquirer in one hand and the Bible and the other. Is that too harsh? <laughs> Forgive me if it is. <laughs> Well, yeah, we are captivated by these kinds of puzzles. I think it's just human nature uh, for mm -hmm. good or bad, right or wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I agree that the whole thrust of Revelation is to call the church to faithful witness. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and yeah, we don't, that cannot be lost in this. Um, it, but often, like you said, David, we, we do get distracted by these things and we and we get sidetracked in what it is that we're called to be. A contemporary observation uh, is that some have said in recent days that the injections for the uh, COVID virus contain a chip. Yes. And it just shows you how wild the imagination goes. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'll let you know right offhand, I don't uh, see any truth in that statement. But I would tie it back to, uh, let me see, chapter six, where we have the seals opened. And we have the situation on earth for both those who follow Christ and those who don't, that there will be financial distress, uh, civil unrest, uh, bloodshed, murder, uh, famine. And I wonder if this somehow comes into play that resources are so short during this time that we come to a situation where uh, all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, uh, are to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has a mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of his name. Um, if this is just a connection with that saying that somehow there's going to be a limitation of resources and you have to be on the you have to be an inside worshiper of satan in order to have access to those resources be it food and water or whatever it might be um and here as with you know other numbers we we pretty much came to the conclusion that 144,000 did not necessarily mean that number 12 thousand times twelve thousand but that it represents would make us think of a great uh, number of people 
Mm-hmm. And so is 6-6 here a literal number? I know this is going to drive mathematicians crazy and numerologists crazy. Uh, but you know, he does begin by saying this calls for wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the one thing we could say for sure, you're not going to get the mark of the beast accidentally. Mm. And even if you were to get it accidentally, this is a an act of volition. You know, you have to know what it is you're accepting and you have to be willing to accept it. So, you know, e- even if and I had somebody bring this question up to me, too, Don, you know, well, what if the the vaccine has the number of the beast in it? Um I said, well, first of all, that flies in the face of all the statements of that particular interpretive school, because, you know, it would literally have to be on your forehead or your right hand, back of your right hand. But second of all, you need to know what it is you're receiving and you need to agree to receive it for it to be effective. There would be nothing, you know, God would certainly not hold us responsible if this were a literal thing and we were to be held down and have it put upon us against our will. Um, so, you know, we're, we're stuck with all sorts of uh, Hollywood esque and melodramatic type interpretations as to how this is going to, to come about. Well, good. Well, well I mean, one thing is for certain that uh, this beast is, uh, is not going to discriminate. Um, all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, are going to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and yet in the midst of that, uh, we are still, as we continually remind ourselves, we're called to endure mm-hmm. um, and uh, be faithful to the word of our, our testimony about Christ. So... Well, guys, we're, gonna, we're not going to make it to 14. We'll do that next session. Um, but uh, we're making progress. We're through chapter 13, looking at some of the, the trials that the church is going to face and is facing. Uh, some of these are, are uh, the present um, in different places in the world. Uh, some of them are yet to be. And um, still, we are called to this faithful living. We're grateful that you joined us again for this session. Uh, we're looking forward to being together again as we look further into uh, rediscovering Jesus in the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm.